which is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane's son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. I'm doing great. I see Christian has his Miskatonic University varsity jacket on. Uh, I have good news. We have a new patron who just joined, Dave Bright. Uh, Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much for your support. Feeling good tonight. Me too. Um, This is going to be an interesting conversation. We're here to discuss Lovecraft in relation to Alien Covenant. And I think before we even decided to do this, we weren't really, I don't think we had planned on it, but someone had requested it, I believe. You want to explain more about that, Patrick or Christian? Well, one one thing was in our last, in the, the Prometheus episode, I specifically said that I didn't see anything Lovecraftian about Covenant and immediately regretted that because there's quite a few things. I have such a weird love-hate relationship with Alien Covenant that sometimes my emotional reaction gets in the way of recognizing the artistic integrity of the movie, the, the layers to it, all, all of the sorts of things. So that was a flippant comment and I regret it. And so we're here to fix that. I'm not sure if anyone specifically pointed it out, though. Um, am I forgetting anything, Patrick? Well, we we have had people ask us to do like if we're ask if we're going to cover Covenant in this little this little uh, Lovecraft sojourn that we've been on, and we had a, a very specific piece of listener feedback that we're going to get to later in the episode tonight that gave us kind of a way through this conversation to bridge it back to other topics that we've been. Um, getting to. So it has been something that's been on people's minds. It's also something that we've brought up a number of times in the last four or five episodes as like, do we kind of go there? Do we not go there? And on our last episode, as Christian was mentioning, the last Lovecraft show, uh, we reached this point where we really came to this verdict that it's not Lovecraftian, right? Like, like you, you had kind of said whether it was flippant or not. You know, you're very educated on this, so I take your, you know, opinion seriously. That it wasn't in that moment, and I also made a case for it not being Lovecraftian because I think of it as a pre-Lovecraftian story, and that it's really like a romantic story in terms of the romantic movement in horror literature, so like gothic, you know, horror kind of thing. Um, so then, and then, you know, a couple of days later, Christian hits us up in the text thread, and he's like. Ah! I was thinking something else, so maybe it works. So that's kind of what we're here to do tonight is to kind of revisit that conversation and then to pull it uh, in an interesting direction towards the end based on some listener feedback. Exactly. So to start things off, 
there is a single line from um, a story by H.P. Lovecraft called just Nyarlathotep. Uh, towards the end of that story, things get kind of cosmic and weird. And there's a line where the narrator refers to a particular line that says, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities. And that right there is covenant. The, the idea of a dead world, the idea of a, a, a civilization that is no longer present, but still has left traces, marks, and in this case, corpses even, that's super Lovecraftian. And so right from the get-go, I was wrong to, to make the statement that I did. And so you have a little bit of At the Mountains of Madness, but that's a reoccurring theme throughout Lovecraft stories, or the idea, this idea of previous civilizations that are so far back that the when humans discover that they even exist, it's mind-shattering because it puts us even even further below these these the great heights that these other civilizations had reached and then receded from. That's another key part of Lovecraft is that all of these fictional civilizations and and ancient species or whatever, they always had a peak to their civilization and then it, it crumbled, it fell away or they become decadent. That was a word that he loved to use because I think that was something he was actually fearing in his own society. So it comes out in his stories. And so we do see that uh, beautifully shown in Covenant, more so even than Prometheus, because we spend more time in that location. So there's a couple other stories I want to tie into this in a minute, but I just wanted to get some, what you guys think of that. Otherwise, I'm going to dominate the conversation because I got these things. I want to, I want to hit every single one of them, but I want to make sure we're all having a chance to talk. I want to agree with that. And before I explain why, I want to also give a shout out to a game that everybody is currently shitting on, which I want people to give another chance, which is the Callisto Protocol, which just came out recently by Glenn Schofield, who co-created Dead Space, which is one of my favorite games of all time. And in the lead up to Callisto Protocol coming out, everybody was saying, oh, this is going to be Dead Space plus Lovecraft. And I was like, sign sign me up for that big time. I pre-ordered it, played it. It was kind of a slow burn to me falling in love with it, which I really have since now I've beaten it. I'm in the middle of another playthrough of it. But a major theme is exactly what you're talking about in this story. Um, there's a whole part where you, it, it takes place primarily on Callisto, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. So, you know, you, you at one point are in, you're outside of the station on Jupiter and you're walking around and you're seeing all of these like entombed frozen corpses and these, you know, vast landscapes filled with dead bodies. It feels very Lovecraftian. There's also another place, uh, you, you visit another moon of another planet, which I won't spoil anything on. And you see, uh, this, you know, beautiful, almost cyberpunk civilization, that has been stopped in its tracks by this explosive virus outbreak and it's littered with corpses and it's this this juxtaposition of you know this like these these this incredible beautiful thing that this or the society achieved with these frozen entombed you know uh corpse carcasses that can never leave it for like frozen in a grimace almost like pompeii you know so that that also struck me as very lovecraftian and i think when i watch covenant you know some of my favorite parts of covenant are those exact moments there's one of my favorite tracks in the score which i'm sure we'll get to when we get to our score episode soon which is coming to patreon uh you know it plays as they're as they're first descending into that cyclopean vista to put it in a Lovecraft terms, and you and you have this beautiful string cue, and they walk down, and they see you see all of these black, you know, bodies that are just littering, scattered like bugs.
and it's this vast, just monolithic architecture. And that the juxtaposition of those things really feels Lovecraftian to me. And I think part of why, to get back to what Christian was saying, is that there's this idea that we are unaware of our own, not only mortality, but our own in uh, our own fallibility, right? That we kind of build these walls around ourselves where we say, like, we know the answers to everything. We know what to do best that, you know, man can overcome anything. And the horror in Lovecraft often comes from the realization that we can't, and we can't control everything, and we can't know everything. And we find it out in the harshest of ways. So yeah, the, the downfall of the engineers and the downfalls of whatever engineer civilization was on the planet that we're exploring in Covenant feels very Lovecraftian to me, actually. I would agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm coming into this conversation probably with the least amount of data in terms of like comparing Lovecraft to or finding Lovecraft in Covenant. I mean, I did a lot of research for Prometheus, and I feel like there's a lot of obvious things in there as we discussed. But this one's a little bit different. Um, the world that they're in uh, on the planet that they're on. Does that planet even have a name in Covenant? I can't even remember. It's just a planet that they... Isn't it Planet, planet four. 4? But... That world they're coming into is obvious. It feels a lot like Earth. It's very Earth-like. It's got a lot of trees and forests, and um, but there's a lot of darkness there, of course. And what one thing that really um, piques my attention in terms of Lovecraft and in context of Covenant are the spores and the way that the spores are operating. And I don't, I don't even really know how to uh, articulate it beyond that. There's just something about Everyone who's seen Covenant knows that there's a scene or a moment in the film where you see David opening up the ship, like opening up the 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 cargo doors of the ship of the 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 um the juggernaut ship or whatever that they're the derelict ship that they're he's he's flown in with with um Elizabeth Shaw. So David releases the urns to the planet, and then you see them kind of coming in and coming down, and all of you know there's. The, the, the inhabitants of the planet. We don't know really, we don't know what planet this is. We don't know if it's really an engineer planet. They kind of look like engineers, but they kind of don't. It's a similar looking civilization, but you don't, I don't know how congruous that planet is. Planet four is with LV or with the, the species of engineers that we are introduced to in Prometheus. However, it's a very interesting and arresting scene where you see the black goo or the accelerant moving in really quickly. I didn't know it could fly. Number one, <laughs> or like take its own, like it's interesting what that accelerant does. Number one, like it, it just kind of becomes this, it's this like black goo that's in these urns. But then when David releases them in covenant, it's this like supernatural goo that can fly and then dive in and like, go, go after these people or whatever. But these those elements to me speak to me as Covenant, or I'm sorry, they speak to me as Lovecraft because I don't, they don't have a beginning and an end in some ways. I don't really know what's happening. It's kind of like we always pivot back to the idea of oblivion. And when we stare into a, a, an alien, we're looking into the face of oblivion because we don't know what it wants. And that to me reeks of Lovecraft. And I feel like there's elements of that in Covenant, but it's it almost feels like window dressing. It doesn't feel like there's more to it than what we're seeing. It's also glossed over quite quickly. Some of the best moments for me in Covenant, you kind of have to watch in slow motion or that, what do you call it, when you you have it paused and you just move frame by frame forward. And then you you can give yourself a longer period to look at what we're seeing, like that the scene with the with the... Uh, the black goo 
attacking everybody. I mean, it, it really is quite powerful, but it's over in you know the blink of an eye. I'm gonna take a, a quick detour. My uh, my oldest son was telling me about this very bizarre thing: um, long term nuclear storage warning signs. Have you guys heard about this? Scientists are because of the how long radioactive material stays dangerous. They're thinking about. Uh, it will outlast us. There's no, there's no doubt it will outlast our civilization and our written language. So how do you warn future civilizations to stay away from these places? But, and so scientists, as, you know, as they do, they've come up with a lot of different ideas um, of visual, like uh, pictures of melting skulls and you know, spikes and all these different things. And every single one of them uh, backfires because it's it's incredibly alluring. Like I can just see, you know, a Mad Max style cult gravitating to this place and and you know feeling some sort of a, a religious bond to the energy of it or whatever. But as he's describing this to me and, and giving me all these wonderful examples, all I can think of is the three Ridley Scott alien films. And in every single one, you have that sense of this is a place you shouldn't be. Humans should 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 back away. Don't get any closer. And we keep getting closer. The, you know, we accept it when Cain goes in because oh he's curious. But everything should be telling them as it does to uh, to Lambert. Let's get out of here. But no no no, they go closer. And in Prometheus, we make fun of them a little bit for it because this place has a skull on the top of the thing. You know, on top of the mountain that they're entering, and we go in anyway. And then by Covenant, it's really a joke that the this entire field of, of blackened corpses and they don't even ask about it. They don't say, you know, Hey David, what happened here? But it is that, that same idea of something terrible is stored here and everything visually is telling us don't go there, turn back. But humans don't, we, we just walk right into it. There's no fear. There's no, it's just like, Oh yeah. And we're not to nitpick the film, but that's a situation where they could move forward and also be afraid because they, they can't go back. So I kind of wish there had been a moment of the realization that this is a terrible place to be, but it's, it's potentially safer than being out on the plains with the, with the neomorph. So, all right, let's hit the next uh, Lovecraftian reference. So in the 1920s, uh, Lovecraft wrote a very schlocky uh, episodic horror story called Herbert West Reanimator. It was written for uh, a magazine called Homebrew or Strange Brew. I think it was Homebrew. And they wanted um, very short episodes that each have a big punch at the end. So he wrote it in a very campy style about this, uh, this would-be doctor who invents a reagent that allows the dead to come back to life. But it never works quite right. They always come back as incredibly violent, animalistic, uh, filled with, with rage and superhuman strength. And he has to... Uh, dispose of the bodies or, or get away or whatever. One of the last uh, segments of this takes place during World War I and where he's serving, uh, Herbert West is serving in the military and he reanimates a severed head and the body to see what will happen. Um, and then it goes awry, of course, as it always does. And so at the, in the final installment, all the corpses, all the re reanimated bodies have banded together under the leadership of this uh, this headless this this corpse that's carrying its own head to to bring Herbert West down. Uh, it's campy, it's goofy, it's also very clearly a pastiche of Frankenstein. But 
It also led to a movie, uh, 1985's Reanimator by Stuart Gordon, which has a very interesting relationship with the severed head of Ash in Alien. There's a lot of questions of, could that potentially have been the inspiration for making the movie? You know, it, it's very iconic to see Ian Holm with his head in the table. And so they take that and, and go even further where the, the evil doctor in that movie is, or the evil guy's walking around holding his own head out. Anyway, cut to David now at, from the end of Prometheus into Covenant, especially in that, uh, the scene that was excised from the film, but is available online, uh, The Crossing. David is a headless uh, monstrosity, right? So I know that's a bit of a leap there, except that some of the aspects of Herbert West Reanimator do seem to show up in Covenant with that sense of a mad creator whose creations are very powerful, uh, very destructive. And there is this weird, it's a very hidden aspect of it, but we're shown all these different terrible deaths of Elizabeth Shaw. And somewhere, someone, I can't remember who, said maybe she died and he brought her back and she died again and he brought her back. Like that, instead of it being that these are terrible ideas out of his imagination, these are potentially things that happen over and over and over again. So the laboratory that we end up seeing, David's laboratory is very Frankenstein-esque, but it's also got a bit of the reanimator, even down to, while he doesn't invent the reagent, uh, as Herbert West did, he, there is this thing that, that creates these changes and creates these monsters. So what do you guys think of that? Yeah, reanimator is a, we should do a frame rate on, on reanimator at some point. That'd be a lot of fun. I think thematically, there's a ton in, in common there. Of course, they both owe a lot to Frankenstein, which is a work of Gothic romantic horror, let it be known. So, you know, going back to that. But no, I definitely uh, agree with you on that. And a lot of the things that scare me the most about Covenant, especially the things that scared me the most in the lead up to it, were all of the like pieces of artwork of Elizabeth in these various incarnations that, you know, my mind was just going a million miles a minute as I was looking at those things and thinking of how terrifying that would be and what the implications of that were. And one of the big letdowns of the movie for me was and continues to be the fact that we don't really get to explore any of that. Although part of me is also like, well, I did in my head quite a bit because I had that same thought. Like, what what if he to, to me, he wasn't necessarily reanimating her, although potentially this reagent or this this accelerant, the black goo might have had the ability to do something like that, you know, if he had worked on it in a certain way. Um, to to my mind, it was more that he was taking her as close to death as he could without pushing her over the line and keeping her alive enough to be able to be a place to a vessel for his experimentation, especially with the female reproductive system, and that he actually was keeping her from dying for extended periods of time with this, which is a really terrifying place to go to. And it's even more scary too when you see the way he is with with uh uh with daniels later in the in in the film and you see him like and he's not menacing in a way that is like i mean he's menacing but but it's it's more like he's just kind of excited to get to work there's like this very strange feeling of like he's just uh, completely unhinged you know and yet completely capable of doing incredible things with all the free time that he has and i think a lot of the horror in the reanimator story as well as in the the film come from that too. It's like, like what, what hell can we unleash? And like, and watching the, the whole grand, you know, I keep bringing up the, the idea of grand Guinol, right. Which is something I've never known if I'm saying it right, but I think that's how you say it. But this idea of over the top gore and sort of exploitative violence 
that characterizes, you know, theater works of that genre and films that are, you know, things like Dario or Argento, you know, for example, like Shallow movies. Um, like to me, there's a lot of that in Covenant, at least implicitly in the way that I kind of see it and think of it. Explicitly, the movie doesn't really translate as something like Suspiria, you know, but the subtext of the movie is. And Suspiria, I think, is a very, very Lovecraftian in its own way, too. There's there's interesting layers to it. And I think, yeah, Reanimator is a really good way to look at it, I think, Christian. I would like to make an observation about David's, when we see David in his lab, I feel like David almost is Lovecraft himself in, in a few moments in the film where he's he's kind of tinkering with these ideas about what things are or could be, but also we don't know what end, like to what end he's going to, like, we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. And I would pose those same questions to Lovecraft himself. What's the point of this? And I don't, and Lovecraft has always seemed very nihilistic to me. Again, this is a still somewhat of a layman's um, interpretation of Lovecraft. I don't know if that that's correct, but David seems very nihilistic. He seems hopeful and romantic in some ways, but also he's killing things. He's killing people. He's experimenting. And I feel like Lovecraft himself was an experimenter in 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 his writing. He was trying things out. Are you seeing? And the the more he tried things out, the darker his material got. He just kept going down this literary well. And to what end, I don't know, but it got it gets kind of scary. And I think David's doing the same thing. So I really see Lovecraft embodied literally in David and in his surroundings. Again, I think it's just a momentary thing. I don't think it's, you know, David is Lovecraft. I don't think there's any intention there, but it, it seems, it seemed maybe coincidental and maybe a little bit purposeful. I don't really know, but it's really clear for me. It's clear to me that um, there is something going on between the relationship between David Lovecraft and then even his work, him experimenting on, but he doesn't even talk about it. He doesn't talk about his experiments. He doesn't talk about what he's doing. You see the table. You see everything, like on display. You see like the the pieces of whether it's an egg or a neomorph or or a face hugger or versions of face huggers. But you don't know what really you're looking at or what really he was doing, which I think is also really terrifying. Which I think was a great a great choice for Ridley Scott, almost like the the jockey scene in Alien. So when we see the jockey. We don't know what what it is, why it's there. We see it. They get closer. It passes us by, and we keep moving. David's lab is similar, where you get there. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what he's doing. He doesn't talk about it, which is odd because they talk about everything else. Um, and then you you move past it and you go on to something else. So again, those moments to me are really Lovecraft, and they're scary. That laboratory is really scary. It's scary in the way that um, in the silence of the lambs when you go into the basement the camera kind of going down into the basement and you see the moths and you see clothing and you see what looks like skin and you don't know what's you kind of have a sinking gross gut feeling as to what's happening but you're not really sure i get that same feeling with david's lab and his presence in it especially when buffalo bill then asks clarice starling to look at this egg and promises her that it's going to be just fine you know that <laughs> David is is such a, an interesting contradiction because he is, um, he's so creative. He's the only creator in the entire series, right? Everyone else, the, no one else has any artistic impulse really, but his creations are also so destructive. 
and his end goal, you said, you know, it's nihilistic. It's especially so for humanity because that's not part of the end goal for him. You guys ready for my third one? Go ahead. Yeah, let's do it. But I'll also say before we go on, and one of the main reasons why I consider Covenant a work of Gothic horror more than Lovecraftian horror is because of that focus on the creative aspect, right? You have this guy who's ensconced in a, you know, what might as well be a Victorian mansion basement, but it, it ends up being, you know, this this cavernous cathedral space. Um, and you have him working on secret experiments with, you know, alchemical strange means and coming out with magical, terrifying things that then return to attack him and others. Like that's a very, that's a very Gothic trope. Whereas Lovecraft, a lot of the time it's like we, something that we talk about with Lovecraft a lot is the characters in his fiction are to me, at least are like never memorable. And I mean, they're memorable in sort of broad strokes, but like the, the inner lives of his characters to me feel very much not important to the story. It's more for, for me, just sort of like they're kind of carrying you through the narrative and you're getting to witness things through them, uh, which is not to say that that doesn't work. I think that's just an aesthetic choice that he tends to make. Whereas the characters in Gothic fiction are like everything like that's it's all about the internal lives that they're dealing with. So it's like the horror of their head. Whereas the the horror in Lovecraft is the horror of the external environment, right? It's the horror of what, what else is out there. So, yeah, but it's an interesting comparison to make. It reminds me a little bit of, um, I mean, what you're saying, uh, this is a bit of, of an aside, but The Haunting of Hill House is very... Uh, Victorian Gothic horror, even though it's not set in that time, it feels like that. Oh yeah, and what's the what's what's the horror from that come from? From the Shirley Jackson book, but also from the incredible Netflix series. It comes from the inner lives of the characters and the the horror that they're dealing with being manifested externally, right? Whereas Lovecraft is this external horror impressing the internal lives of the characters. When Lovecraft's characters are memorable, it's despite his best efforts to make them not memorable. He, he really doesn't intend any of the characters to have a particular arc. They're, they're there to witness things. They're there to open doors that shouldn't be opened, things like that. But then it's what they see and observe and extrapolate from that. That's what fascinated him. I'm sure I've brought up um, Bluebeard's Bride on this at some point and in, in comparison or in relation to Covenant. But again, there's the, the, the idea of the very scary location that the character shouldn't be at. And, and as a reader, you're like, no, please don't be there. Um, in this case, it's just the quick version is um, uh, a woman marries this man named Bluebeard uh, and, and he takes her to his, his castle and you, know, you can go anywhere in the castle, but don't go into this one door. And then he leaves. And so, you know, of course she goes in the door and discovers that she's not the first bride of Bluebeard and that all the previous brides also had opened this door. And so he had killed them and, and put their bodies in there. And you have a little sense of that in Covenant with characters making these bizarre choices that uh, they, they, to me, they feel like bad 80s slasher choices. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off by myself. I'm going to go down to the basement, whatever. But because of the, the overall aesthetic of Covenant, it probably is much more of that uh, gothic horror where 
of course the character is going to go off on their own because that's just that's part of how that story goes and it's a, it's a more classic tradition i'm not sure so my my final uh comparison here between a lovecraft story and and covenant is so lovecraft wrote two novels a uh, two almost novels, uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and the, uh, the Case of Charles Dexter Ward. And he put them in a drawer in his desk and he never showed them, never published them. They weren't found until after he had died, which is too bad because they're both really good, especially the strange case of Charles Dexter Ward, which involves a young man doing some genealogical research and discovering that he has this like three times removed great grandfather that no one wants to talk about and that all the records are missing from. And the more he digs, he, he finally uncovers a hidden painting of this man and realizes that they're identical. They look exactly the same. And he finds with that painting a, a note pretty much to him, to, you know, to he who shall come after and all these um, hints about things that he doesn't want to show anybody. So we're going to ruin that story. We're going to, we're going to spoil that story to explain here. Um, his, his great, great, great grandfather was a warlock and that what he's discovered is how to reanimate, how to, to bring back from, uh, the essential salts, um, this, this person who had died a long time ago. So he brings this guy back and starts out as a sort of a, a mentor situation where he's learning about these, these black arts and all these things. And he travels around, makes contact with other warlocks who are doing the same thing of, uh, skipping, you know, cheating death pretty much. Uh, but eventually he becomes squeamish to what they're up to. And uh, his ancestor, whose name is Joseph Kerwin, kills him and replaces him. So everyone mistakes the, you know, one for the other, even though there's some really blatant tells about like the raspy voice and uh, all of his references are to 17th century things instead of, you know, 1930s things or 1920s things. Anyway, um, and then at the end of the story, when the nominal heroes are able to defeat uh, Joseph Kerwin, part of that is discovering this incredible complex of tunnels and caves underneath his house where he has these creatures in pits that have been there for over, you know, for hundreds of years. They don't have to eat very much or, or at all. And they're just, they're just biding their time because part of what he, this guy, Joseph Kerwin, was doing was actually amassing an army. And it's and it just, oh, it's a, the, the barest of mentions. Lovecraft just offhandedly, oh yeah, it looks like he was raising an entire army in order to, we don't know, take over the world, do something. So from this, what I'm extrapolating is that the Joseph Kerwin, Charles Dexter Ward relationship is obviously um, Walter and David, but also the idea of um, amassing an army, keeping monsters, you know, raising, raising things, it, you know, it's there. There's something there. And again, none of us are saying that the people who wrote Alien Covenant or Prometheus were, were pouring through their Arkham House editions of, of Lovecraft's collected works and saying, oh, I'll take this and I'll take this. It's more that, and, and this is coming as a greater fan of Lovecraft than of Covenant, when I apply these, th these ideas from Lovecraft to Covenant, suddenly the Walter-David relationship for me becomes so much more interesting because it, it's, it feels not that David had planned it. There was no way that David knew that a, a next generation David eight was going to be, you know, on this ship, but 
once he sees him, the plan is potentially in motion there of replacing him or, or bringing him over to his side, all that kind of stuff. And it resonates nicely. It's the resonance of it that makes it more satisfying for me when I look at it through a Lovecraftian lens. I have a question for both of you. Um, just for better context for me, in terms of Lovecraft, the man um, is, I, I feel like, yes, his work is dark, but it's not just dark because he likes to explore dark material. I feel like it's dark because he himself was dark. Like he, he had, he was lost. He was, he didn't have a good outlook on his life. He didn't obviously ended up not living very long at all, but his work seems without hope as well. And yes, nihilistic. Would those be, as we continue forward with this, this with this topic, would though would that be an accurate assessment of who he is or was? It's, it, it, I don't know if he intentionally cultivated that even in his lifetime, uh, there are people would, uh, how to say this, people had an idea of who he was. He was, a, he was definitely reclusive and he went through a pretty long period of, of having no contact with other people um, when he was in his late teens, early twenties. And he just, you know, he just shut himself off from society uh, and, and lived with a, a very mentally ill mother. And once she had died, he came out of his shell and he, you, I can compare the date that he wrote a very bleak story with a poem that he wrote about how much he loves kittens and ice cream, quite honestly, on the exact same day writing to friends and he traveled extensively. He, by all accounts, was a wonderful person to have in your home. Uh, um, I don't know. It, that darkness was in him. And in some of his letters, he tries to, the, the letters feel very artificial when he does this, but he tries to distance himself from all emotion. But deep down, I, I don't, I don't think that he was, I don't think he was emo. I don't think there was like this, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to put on my, my black eyeliner and, and write sad poetry kind of a thing. I think he just, he, he absolutely felt that the best way that he could express his creative vision was through these, these very dark and very bleak stories. And he never felt that he captured really the true essence of what he was looking for. To that end, though, um, I think about the man Christopher Hitchens, which I, got, I know you guys know, who, of course, was an avowed atheist, and he spent his time and, you know, talking about his atheism, writing books about it, but he seemed like a horribly unhappy person. Um, a lot of the things that I've read about him or the interviews I've seen about him, I know, he, of course, he's passed now. Um, I just, I don't like him. I don't like anything about him. Like, I, and I, he's, he can, be, he intended to be so nasty and I'm bringing him up because as I have explored Lovecraft's work, none of it is like hopeful, not that to be a good person, you need to be hopeful. I'm not even saying that at all. Some of the, my most favorite things in terms of shows and films are dark. Um, Alien, even though Ripley makes it out at the end is not a hopeful film at all. And aliens isn't either. Alien 3 is the worst of them in terms of hopefulness. Um, but I feel like Lovecraft's work is not just absent of joy or hope. It's like a well you fall down and you keep falling and you keep falling and you where is it going to end? 
I don't know where it's going to end and it's not fun. And I mean, I don't mean like not fun, like his themes aren't interesting, but I'm trying to like, trying to find out, like, as we continue to discuss him and if we talk about covenant in relationship to David, who is essentially becomes the protagonist in some ways, he takes center stage. Where does David end? Where does David, what is he, what is he doing? What does he want? I don't really know, but I get the same again. I'm not trying to intentionally make these parallels, but as I'm looking into this, I then pivot back to, to Lovecraft and I'm trying to figure out what he really wanted to say. What was he saying with his work? And I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I'll get around to that, but I do want to say Christopher Hitchens uh, very much was playing a part as as a public intellectual. Like he had a lot of very loyal friends who thought he was a really great guy, and his his personal writings are actually very gentle. It's just when he was in public and he was on stage, he had this thing to sort of keep up with. But he was actually supposedly a very gentle person outside of that, who I really admired a lot. In terms of uh, Lovecraft, I think to to me part of what part of why he wrote what he wrote was because he wanted to be a writer professionally and he had a hard time getting a foothold early on. And the pulp magazines were the ones who were looking for content and would buy things. So like that was sort of how he got, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, but I think he was published in those sorts of publications early in his career. And that kind of became his brand. Um, and unfortunately during his lifetime, he never really got out of, I think, I think he probably wanted to do more quote unquote serious stuff, but there wasn't really a market for it. And there also wasn't really a market for his actual literature during his lifetime for the most part, because he kind of died penniless and, you know, relatively unknown. So I think like, it's, it's definitely easy to look at Lovecraft as this, you know, tragic figure where he died young, he lived a sheltered life. He was, you know, racist. He was all these things, just these really kind of sad, dark things. But like in, in reality, I think it's partly because that's all we have access to from him outside of his personal correspondence, you know. But then you look at his personal correspondence, like Christian was saying, and w- of which there is incredible amounts of it. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of letters you can read. And they're they're really all over the place and very funny and very erudite and very curious and um, and he was a good friend to a lot of people, especially later in life. You know, like uh, like in the last years of his life, he had friends all over the place, and he would go visit them and stay with them and um, hang out. And I think had he gotten that opportunity to quote unquote escape from the genre that he had kind of pigeonholed himself into, I think he probably would have eventually gotten there. But um, what people wanted were these short form stories that were very strange and weird and fantastical because they didn't have movies to watch that could really do what he could do with his words, and you know. I think that's kind of how how that whole thing started, right, Christian? Absolutely. When he started out, he was very much uh, mimicking the style of Poe and Lord Dunsany, and then sort of formed his own voice out of that. And what he wrote, although it was intended, it really could only really be published in the pulps. The pulps rejected it. Uh, Weird Tales rejected almost every one of his stories on the first pass. And sometimes his friends would have to, because he, he would only ever submit once because he, he refused to make any changes. So he would submit a story. The Weird Tales editor would say, nope, I don't want that because it's too long. It's too weird. It's too whatever. And then he'd say, oh, I'm a failure. And his friends would go behind his back and resubmit it or would tell Weird Tales that he was going to go to a different magazine or whatever. And, and so that's how, but he, once he had his style, he refused to, um, to follow any sort of, uh, you know, patterns of, of what other people were doing that was popular. 
Uh, he had what he wanted to do and he just kept doing it. And when it stopped selling towards the end of his life, he just really honestly stopped writing or he stopped writing for publication. And so there were these things that were found later. Something that I, I want to say before we move on from this topic that I've, I've wanted to bring up a couple of times is Poe. And you, you just mentioned him being a Lord with, with Lord, a Lord with, along with Lord Dunsany, an important progenitor or, or you know, somebody who came before Lovecraft. Um, I think a lot of what Covenant represents to me is very Poe in its style. And he's, a, of course, gothic horror. He's like, you know, one of the best known exemplars of that style. And I think uh, Lovecraft, whether he wanted to or not, had been quite a lot inspired by his works. And so he had kind of internalized a lot of the story structures and things. So I think a lot of the things in Covenant that read as sort of gothic horror and Lovecraft are maybe because of, of Poe. A great example of this of course, is Bluebeard's Castle, right? So so that that's a story that predates any of the people that we're talking about. It's like a very old myth. But another take on a similar theme is in The Mask of the Red Death, which is a, a, a Poe story, which is incredibly scary and very Covenant-esque, right? Where you have this decadent party happening with all these different rooms that are exposing these different you know fatal flaws in humanity. And little do they know that the thing they've been trying to keep out the entire time has actually been inside with them and they all die from it, which is a very Covenant kind of thing, right? That death was in the building the whole time. They thought they had escaped the neomorph, right? They thought that they had gotten shelter, but actually the shelter was the thing that they should have been afraid of. So there's, there's, I, when I, when I watch Covenant, I'm not thinking Lovecraft. I'm really thinking Shelley. I'm really thinking Byron. <laughs> I'm thinking Poe. Uh, but I, now I'm thinking, I can see how Lovecraft built on those things and took them in different directions. And you can kind of see both sides of it. So I think, I think Covenant is an interesting case study in how these traditions speak to each other, at least, maybe. Absolutely, I can see that. And and so again, not trying to make the, the case that they were looking at Lovecraft so much as possibly Lovecraft and these writers were both looking back at Gothic horror. And so therefore you have similarities just from pulling from that original source. Man, I wish I liked Covenant better because there's so many interesting things to talk about. But again, like I said earlier, the bits that I think are the most wonderful go so quickly and the bits that I dislike last so long, but, and I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are more things that can be teased out like this and similar. Lovecraft isn't the only person we could use for this lens. There are other authors and there are, are other styles of writing or styles of filmmaking that we could apply to this. Just the fact that it's called planet four makes me think of forbidden planet and fifties and sixties um, science fiction films. Everyone likes to point to um, Planet of the Vampires as being a, a proto-alien because of the skeleton inside the alien spaceship. But the the costuming from that film, I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's a, a Mario Bava, nineteen. Yeah, I, we did a show on it for but when we when I when we did our our Alien series, uh, which we oh, called. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I can't remember what we called that entire series of episodes. Now, seven earlier. Forbidden oh, Planet, oh. yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. The, in the first episode, we we focus on Forbidden Planet and Planet of the Vampires in particular, as yeah, exactly, because because they're often brought up as the progenitors of the of the film, basically. But the the spacesuits in Prometheus look to me like a much more sophisticated version of those leather high collared outfits from that film. I don't know, I don't know if that was on purpose or it just again one of these. It, it fits the. Once you're in that that um, that genre or that zeitgeist, you know certain things kind of seem to to keep coming up.
Alien Covenant probably has the most Lovecraftian ending of any of the Alien films, though, because it's even bleaker than Alien 3, because there's no redemption at all. You get to the end of the film, and with Alien 3, where we've seen all these characters that we love die, and these are the characters that we've, we've learned to at least like die, and then Ripley makes the heroic sacrifice. In this, we don't get that. It's whittled down and whittled down until we have just a few remaining main characters and then the betrayal, whether it's obvious or a surprise, happens, and then they're just left in a very dark place. So we're going to transition this episode now to the other topic that listener Marty had um, proposed to us, which was discussing how the Prometheus Covenant films should, how, how should they be finished off? Should there be, should there be a continuation? And if so, in what format? Now, should they be continued? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think that the prequels have too much baggage. I don't even know. I think that, I mean, for the mass audiences, maybe there'd be a little bit more interest, but for the hardcore fandom, I think it would just be a big eye roll, honestly, especially if Ridley Scott was directing it. People would be like, oh, great. Like, I don't even know people would give that movie a chance just because um, I, a lot of people, I feel like a little bit more people like Prometheus over Covenant people kind of took the that return or uh what's whatever what was that last star wars movie the sequel what was that called that piece of shit rise of skywalker rise of skywalker like i feel like covenant became the rise of skywalker where with prometheus people were like oh yeah this was interesting this is blah 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 and then then covenant came out and people were like fuck it i'm done they were more angry about covenant than they were about prometheus but i think that covenant had the better the better writing, but I mean, I think it was marginally better. I don't think it was that much better, but the characters were, were better. That first half was great. Whereas with Prometheus, I don't know what half was great. There are great things in it, but I don't, all of it, it's pretty shitty in my opinion, even though it's built with some amazing props. Um, but I do think that there's a great story to be had, to be told, to finishing the story that covenant started essentially because what happened as everyone knows is of course you guys know there was prometheus and then with um neil blomkamp's announcement of his film there was a, a reset of what uh covenant was going to be it was going to be called alien paradise lost and then they switched it up and then they gave the title alien and then they made it more you know we started seeing like like when they started dropping um images you started seeing like a more traditional i wouldn't say like marine marine stuff but it looked like there was like military presence it looked like they were really trying to play that up like that's what we're going to sell this with this is going to be more in the style of aliens or alien and it wasn't really either but i really think that there is a wonderful story that you could tell to finish covenant um and really blow people away and be really, really authentically scary while removing David as a, as the antagonist or the protagonist. You want to tell us? Cause I know when this topic came up, you're like, I know that it's the way the story should go. So what, what were you thinking? Well, my idea is, has, was this, and it's been, I've had this idea since, um, I don't know, t probably towards the end of 2017, which was the release of the film that the, the ship, crash lands on whatever planet something happens the ship crashes david is then um disembodied he's only like a torso or something he can't really do anything so when he crash lands most of the colonists die but a lot of them live so they're brought back up out of their cryo 
Tennessee's still alive, of course, and um, Daniels is still alive. But the story that's going to be happening is all of those embryos that, well, this. So David brought aboard maybe six to seven little baby face huggers, I think, which that's a whole nother discussion because how did he even do that? How did that happen? How did it's kind of ridiculous, but whatever they exist, they're there. But he put those in the same drawer with human embryos. And my idea is when that ship crash lands on orange J six or orge six, however you say it, there's some type of um, intermingling of the DNA. And then eventually what happens is as the colony as the as the people recover from the ship and they realize, okay, here's where we are, here's where we're going to stay because we don't have a ship anymore. They start building their homes. Months go by. All of a sudden, someone finds three and four year old children out in some forest or some area somewhere, and they're like, "Why are there human children here? Why are you here?" And then they're like, "Well, we did have these embryos, but the embryos can't be, they can't." be born without gestation. So how did they, how did these children get here? And what happens is the, the, the baby face huggers have then somehow grafted on maybe internally or something to those human embryos and grows them. So they bring those kids back to the colony. Those kids are then adopted into certain families. Maybe there's only three or four of them. The older they get, something happens when they, I don't know if it's when they hit puberty. I don't want to I wasn't thinking something kind of like stupid like that, but something's happening with them. But by all, for all intents and purposes, they look fine. They seem normal. And then there's a shift and one by one, they start changing, but it's all psychological first. It's all like, well, they're acting weird. They're, they're violent. What's happening to them. And as these kids get older, a little bit older, but they're also growing really quickly. And that's weird too. They're like, well, why are these children growing quickly? What happened? What happened when they were in cryo? What was going on? People are trying to understand what's happening. And then the kids eventually it's some type of like, uh, like the creature just kind of bursts out from them, like they are them, but their heads start to distend and they start to become, um, they start to become disfigured. Um, and the, and people think, well, maybe it's, there's something wrong with the embryo. Someone didn't properly check to see if these embryos were viable. Obviously they weren't viable, even though the kids have grown up, they're suffering from these genetic mutations. They're not, they're genetic mutations, but they're not the genetic mutations that they expect them to be. So what happens eventually is those kids then become creatures and these creatures then start swarming the colony. Um, conversely, I would also have Walter have had gotten on the covenant before it took off somehow. And Walter is the the android there, and he kind of becomes the antagonist, working alongside Daniels and um, Tennessee and maybe what other characters to essentially save the colony and um, save it from what seems like a, a a a an impending death, which are all of these kids who are not kids anymore, who are beasts attacking it. That's kind of my that's my big story. I don't have like a complete ending, but that's the story that I started germinating my head. Like, how would I tell a better story? How would I end this? And that's how I would end it. It's like a puberty cautionary tale. <laughs> I'm changing. Oh, that's cool. I like it. It's it's freaky. So you, you would have, I mean, Walter would be a protagonist. And that's Did I say antagonist. Yeah. You, you mean, yeah. He, he would Walter be would helpful. Be, he would or be, he would be, a, he would be a, um, Walter would be a, a supporting character. I don't think he would be the main character, but I also wouldn't want Daniels as a main character either. She's not strong enough. We would need, I would want 
Walter to take over the David role, but he is obviously the opposite. He's more compassionate, although he's a robot. So, but still his programming is more compassionate and he's a scientist and he's a researcher. That's what he is. That's what he does. And to have him kind of there trying to figure out what's going on as things get worse and worse and worse in this colony, just they're kind of being attacked from within. They have these kids who then become something completely different and they attack them. So that, Again, that's my preliminary idea. I didn't like take it through fruition, but I wrote this whole, whole long thing out in 2017 because I wanted a better film. I wanted to enjoy, I wanted to enjoy Covenant in a way that I couldn't enjoy it. So I wrote something that I thought would end it better. So, do you, th- do you guys think that David just replaces Walter by literally running out instead of him? Because there's no nail hole. Yeah, I think his- we're supposed to see that he's transferred to Walter, right? How could that, yeah, the, the lack of the nail hole when they made yeah. such a point of it. I, I'm anyway, anyway, I don't, I don't think he's transferred to Walter at all. That's, that's David. So what happened to Walter? He's supposedly still in his lab, but I, I think Walter got well, out. Yeah. They have the fight in the map room or the, I don't know what, right. I hate that WWF crap. That, <laughs> the body that, slams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I do. I do love when we, I can't remember now whether it's Walter or David gets shut down and just does that collapse in. That's a, yeah, that's a that's really cool. powerful shot. It is. It reminds me of a spider when you like kill a spider or something and they all crinkle right up. And it crinkles up. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. pretty freaky. Um, I can, I have, go? I have kind of a quick one. Yeah, I can do it. So, right. so let, let me do it quick to, to my mind, we're given this huge gift at the end of covenant and that all of this all over the place storytelling that we've had through this, through prequels is no longer important. We don't have to see any of it. We are back on a ship in a very contained setting with very few people who are awake and with one very villainous, you know, main foil to focus on for the moment. And we have this almost, it's almost a reset button that gets pushed. There's no reason to have a distress signal to go find. There's no greater motive other than trying to survive and get David off this fucking ship before he's able to kill the colonists. So like, there's a lot of tension implicit in that setup you know you can't get you can't go anywhere like the ship is 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 traveling through space and you are in a literally and you are entombed to use a, a poe thing with a cask of amontillado right like you, you are just stuck behind this glass wall unable to do anything while the lives of all of these dozens of colonists are very much in danger and that so that to me provides all like the dramatic tension that i that i kind of need and what i would love to happen for this movie is for the whole thing to be on the ship, like to not, not to leave the ship at all. Cause I think there's a lot of interesting corners to it that we've seen. There's a lot of interesting spaces that could be explored. If it were done well, it could be a really great claustrophobic setting, something that a director like Fede Alvarez would be incredible at, because I think that he's shown in evil dead and especially in don't breathe a real economy of shot making to create genuine claustrophobia right so like so i'm just putting him out there you know uh, as potentially would do a really good job with the story as i see it so basically you have this so daniels needs to get off tennessee suffocates in his in his chamber the ship david has taken the ship off of its regular power source and switched to auxiliary power using just whatever solar shield capacity they have left because he wants to preserve as much energy as he can for his grand experiment, because now he has control, his dominion over his own paradise, right? This is his chance to do, you know, his grand experiment. 
So he, we see him doing terrible things. We don't get to watch much of it, but we get to see the after effects of it because we don't really, you know, we're kind of just there observing David, but there's nobody awake to be able to see him yet. Daniels, when the switch, when the ship switches to auxiliary power, wakes up because her, her, you know, power system toggles off. She's aroused in her chamber. She's able to get out of it. And then she awakens basically 20 years in the future. So 20 years have gone by while she's been stuck in this cryotube. She wakes up and he's had 20 years to experiment on these people. So he has wrought this a fucking like Hellraiser level nightmare scape. And she wakes up in that. She comes out of this uh, out of her cryotube. She has no idea where the ship is. She's walking and seeing these just horrific experimentations of all these prisoners. Not well, they're prisoners in effect, but they're just you know colonists who have he's taken out and they're hanging on things and they're all splayed open. And and she doesn't find doesn't know where David is. She finds him as he's he's and and this is something where like this could be stupid this could be like an Elden thing or it could not be but like I I, I like the idea that he has tried to become one with the ship that like he's become somehow like the master of it with artificial intelligence so it's sort of like her against not only David but against this like this this universe that he's created that she's trapped in she realizes partway through the movie that there's no way she's ever going to get out of this and that the better thing to do is just to jettison the ship and leave it you know, as space debris and hope that nobody ever, uh, you know, picks it up. She leaves a warning. She she gets to leave a distress beacon in the, in the end of the movie. And then she defeats David, who fucking knows how, and drifts off into space, knowing that her fate is sealed, but being content with the fact that she at least didn't let this thing land and didn't let this thing spread any further, that she's closed the Dominion off and set it into space. That's kind of what I would, what I would want. One quick question before I give my thoughts. Am I right at the end, at the end of Covenant, does David contact Whaling Yutani? Isn't there some sort of like opening a communication to Whaling Yutani? Or is that in that weird expanded, you know, they, they shot what is essentially a walkthrough of the lab as though it's a continuation of the story. I don't know. I feel like there was at some point, it, it was implied that David was communicating with Earth. No, you're, you there is the there's a short film that they released that takes yeah. place where I think there's company people in David's lab where they go to the planet later on and discover it, right? Yeah. Where was that? That was it, on it, Alien Day for was that Alien Day for 2017 or it, it's a walkthrough. It's I don't think it's even the original set. I think it was the reconstruction of the set. Yeah, so it was a digital reconstruction. Yeah. But, you know, they Are the, you talking the patches... about the, the David's Lab short film that came out 2 years ago on YouTube 3 years ago? It was an official release. Yeah, but it was uh, it was called David's Lab, right? And it was it was like a one-off YouTube thing that Fox made. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Still Fox. Yeah. Okay. And there's yeah, people right. in big suits. Yeah, I forgot about his, that. That's right. Yeah. But they're but they're Covenant suits is the problem. You can see the patches, so it's hmm. they, they just reused stuff that they had, and so I don't I don't count that. I couldn't remember though if at the very end because the ship recognizes him as David, right? Which is also kind of weird. Um, it doesn't, it stops calling him Walter and it calls him David. And then he, you know, wants to play some Wagner. Okay. So first 
do no harm. That's, that's my, my feeling. If this, if this series continues, it can't ever connect to alien. There's no need. The space jockey and the, the crash derelict are thousands of years old and the alien has existed completely separate from David's experimentation. So that's my first, that's my first ask is, um, we tell a story that is contained kind of like what Patrick was saying, but I would go even further because all of the characters have, have gone under in cryo. No one is awake except David. And so following the exact pattern of these films so far, we just kill them all off. He has 2000 colonists in cryo and he has over a thousand second generation embryos, whatever that means. I would love to see David make pretty much a floating hive. He creates this, this 3000 member strong, um, uh, horror show of, of, of aliens, but it's contained within the ship. And clearly somehow David loses control of it because otherwise he would be turning the ship back to earth. His whole point when he was talking to Walter was that he wanted to go to earth and I don't know, kill everyone. So he can't do that. So somehow the story has to impede that. I I'm, I'm not going to get into, you know, minute details about this because I haven't really thought it all out. I just, I like the idea of a ghost ship that is teeming with alien life. And maybe um, David either, as you were saying, Patrick has either become part of the computer or has become part of the alien hive one, one way or the other, if he's, if he's, you know, been resined up, but isn't obviously capable of uh, being face hugged, but is still, he's still awake for it all because he's a robot. Although even there, that's something the prequels, um, the prequels act like these robots are, are never going to die. And I don't know where that idea came from. Why would they not have built in obsolescence? That's, that's normal for any product. So I think that he runs down. I think David dies an ignoble death and you just have this ship be, that is floating through space with thousands of aliens that are doing that same hibernation that we see in aliens where the whole hive has gone quiet. And so you have this completely quiet ship that's just packed with aliens and it's just floating out there. Now, what form this would take, I don't see that it needs to be a film. I think that that could be a book, that could be a comic, that could be an audio drama, actually less of an audio drama because what I'm describing is a very, um, I just want to cut out all the things I don't like and, and create something that I do like, which is a ship full of aliens. That's a, that's a keeper. However, in um, Alien Inferno's Fall, the, the recent novel from Titan, there is the hint. You have these uh, engineer um, dreadnought or juggernaut ships that appear to be piloted by androids. That's the, at the end of the book, that's the implication is that the, the one thing they've been able to tell from the ship before it was destroyed was that they think that human-made android life is what is controlling these things. And that seems to tie back to David, but that's the only piece of media that has even dared to kind of bridge the gap between the two. So uh, as far as whether this should even happen, that's the, the other question. As, as someone who doesn't care for the prequels particularly, I like the idea of it just being a, a dead end, but even then it feels incomplete. I feel like if you've gone to the trouble of telling two parts of the story, it feels like a third film would complete it. Something needs to wrap this up and be definitive. And sadly, that has to be a movie or possibly a television show because any other form of media is 
it's, it's second tier and people won't, people are going to want something. The people that like these films are going to want something more satisfying and possibly even the larger film going audience, Jimmy, to your point, they may roll their eyes, but there's still going to be these lingering questions of like, why didn't Michael Fassbender's character have any resolution that he's a big enough star that that might even supersede whether they care that the alien prequels don't tie into the classic alien trilogy. So, so that was a very wishy-washy ending. I'm going to turn it back over to you guys. Well, I think I have two, two reactions to that. The first one I'm, I'm going to bookmark, which is what the studio wants. And the second, well, the first one I want to say uh, is that there, you know, if you look at the comics and you look at, at stories like fire and stone, for example, right. They, they do, they, they talk about a lot of themes that are ancillary to covenant, but they also, I think, give us a lot of roads for like what happens when artificial intelligence becomes intertwined with the accelerant, right? So, like the, the character that I was alluding to earlier, Eldon, like his journey is is a little stupid, but it's pretty scary. Also, in those comic books, the fact that he becomes, you know, he he uses the accelerant in ways to augment the bio, you know, mechanical parts of himself. Uh, which again, like, I don't know if it holds up to scrutiny, but it does create some like interesting set pieces. So that could be another way out of this too, is that David, you know, engineers himself over the course of however long Daniels is out and Tennessee is out into something grander. Like he becomes his own great, you know, his own magnum opus. I think in terms of the planned obsolescence thing, I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with you, Christian, that, that, that should be addressed, but I think part of it though, is that David was like, uh, clearly he was the prototype. And there were things about him that they didn't know when they built him, you know, like, and one of those could be something like a planned life expectancy or something like a termination date or an expiration date. Like they didn't realize they would need something like that. So if they created something, I mean, you run into issues mechanically, right? Because of things like entropy and heat dissipation and sources of fuel, like those are all valid issues, but we're also talking about things that take place a hundred years from now. So like, who, you know, who, who knows it's science fiction, you know what I mean? Um, but I think if there is one Android that wouldn't have that, it would be David because they like really fucked up with him. Like they clearly did not know what parameters they should have been thinking about. And you see it as soon as he's turned on and he, and he doesn't want to get the T right away. You're like, Oh, you can see, you can see everything in that moment, which is part of why I love that moment so much. Um, the other thing I want to circle back around to is in terms of what comes next, right? Like I, I definitely agree with you that it has to be something marquee level that will get millions of people or at least thousands of people to see it. And I think that like a movie is the way to do that. I also think that Covenant did not make money the way that they wanted it to. Prometheus did, but Covenant really did not uh, do particularly well. And I think that that's a really hard sell. Ridley Scott is is almost is almost 90 at this point. He's like 86 now, I think, right? Like you have to assume that he's not going to do too many more movies in his lifetime, but he also is holding on to this thing incredibly closely. Like Jamie was mentioning earlier with the Blomkamp film, which we're going to return to in an episode coming up. Um, you know, like that was something that really the, the reason that we didn't get that movie allegedly is Ridley Scott said no, which is a big deal. And you know, so Ridley isn't going to want somebody else to take the story over, I'm sure, but he also might not be able to make it. So we might be left with a genuine dead end. I think that. I think that we're all making a fatal mistake though right now, as is Marty, our beloved listener who gave us this great question, by the way, Marty, thank you for writing it because this has been a lot of fun to talk and think about. But I think we're all looking at this from an angle that, I mean, 
I'm not exaggerating when I say 99.7% of the rest of the world is not looking at this through. Like we are looking at this from a very like interior fan perspective where we want the story to be told so perfectly. We want it to be so artful and interesting and different and fun. And like, we want to have Easter eggs, but not have Easter eggs. And we want this thing to feel like something we've seen before, but be totally different from anything we've ever seen. We have all of these like ridiculous expectations on this thing that are very hard to satisfy. And the studio doesn't care about any of that. Like they don't fucking care at all. And I'm not even saying that as a judgment on them. They are a money-making business that has stakeholders and shareholders, and they need to make a return on profit. And this film, this franchise has historically been pretty bad at that. So like getting something greenlit that is experimental, getting a ghost ship movie greenlit, getting a pubescent alien ripping out of skin thing, getting a Hellraiser alien movie like those 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 are not things that the studio wants to do so um what the studio wants is they want michael fassbender right they want word of mouth they want good viral advertising they want people to show up and um and the prequels are at a place now where i don't think you can do any of those things i think people would show up for an aliens movie i do think that the blomkamp movie although i have a lot of issues with it probably would have gotten a lot of people to see it because it's sort of, you know, everybody has fond memories of going to see Aliens or everybody likes Avatar. You know, everybody likes these movies that hit these certain beats that are very universal. I'm, I'm not comparing them particularly, but I am saying that they're both they're both universally, you know, beloved movies among the general public, maybe not among us all the time. Aliens obviously being something that we love, but Avatar maybe not. Anyway, I think that we're putting ourselves in a position that is disadvantageous because we're not seeing what the studio is seeing. And the studio really honestly doesn't care about anything that we're talking about tonight, which is kind of unfortunate, you know? But to push back on that a little bit, the studio now, of course, the IP is in the hands of Disney. So we'll see what Disney has to offer in terms of the Alvarez film and the the Holly series, which are both shooting this year, supposedly. Uh, For sure, the Alvarez film. But in the hands of the studio... This IP has never done well. They have never had instincts. Their instincts have not served them. So you might be right saying the studio wants Michael Fassbender. Maybe that's true, but the studio doesn't know how to make money off this. The studio, as it was Fox, when Fox was making these alien films, they didn't know what the fuck that they were doing. Yes, uh, Prometheus was profitable, marginally profitable. You're talking probably maybe 25, 30 million. So it it made its money back and a little bit extra. It's not the kind of profitable. It's like, oh my God, this was a blockbuster. I think it made 126 million domestic and I think 240 million worldwide. So, and the budget was 125 million. So it didn't make a lot of money. Plus you got to add in 50 to maybe 75 million, maybe not quite 75 million, but at least 50 million in terms of promotion. Uh, Prometheus wasn't really, it was a little bit more, it was better, but it wasn't great. And then of course, Covenant was just a flop for all intents and purposes. So I don't think that the studio really knows what they're doing. Now, the jury is out on on whether or not Disney knows what they're doing or Steve Asbell, who is in charge of 20th century films. Um, We'll see if they know what they're doing. And I I think to your point, Patrick, we do have a bit of a myopic view of what we would like to see, but at the same time, I think the studio would be wise to tap people like us, maybe not us specifically, maybe, I don't know, Aaron Percival or someone else to figure out like, well, what is going to work? Because all they've tried has not worked. 
We'll see if it does. And if the Alvarez film works, which is the film we're going to be seeing first, obviously, um, then they're on to something. It's, hopefully it's prey level good. I will say this is what I think was going to happen that in terms of the end or the, the, the final film in the prequel trilogy that um, Ridley Scott was going to have that, that, that um, derelict or that ship I'm sorry, Ridley Scott was going to have the Covenant ship crash land on LV-426. He was going to tie all this up. He was going to link it back to Alien. Those What was going to happen was the, all of those um, people in cryo, um, all of the, 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 the colonists were going to end up eggs or something um, in that derelict ship. Like That's how heavy-handed I believe that Ridley Scott was going to be, and you can even hear it in some of his interviews. He's like, "Oh yeah, we're going to come in the back end of of Alien, right?" As the, you know, right as uh, the Nostromo setting down on LV four two six, like he was going to make this bump right up against it. And I think it was going to be, in my opinion, I have no expert, I don't know anything, um, except for his own words, and he wanted to tie it right into Alien. So I suspect the third film was going to tie it right into Alien, where maybe. Who was in that that jockey who was in in the in the suit, even though I don't believe it was a suit, is either going to be Daniels or Tennessee, someone trying to get off the planet, and then some like something really stupid. Really. Like I think it was going to be really stupid um in terms of how they tie it together. And I the, some of the evidence for this is also the beat for beat repeat that Covenant is of alien, like beat for beat in many ways. Um, that were really obvious and they were really almost insulting to the, to the, to the legacy of alien. And I just think they were going to go full throttle on that uh, to continue it on. And it wasn't going to be anything that we were going to be satisfied with. It was going to be like, Oh, let's pull the curtain up even more. And this is here. And this egg that pain found is actually Daniel or something stupid like that. That's what I think. I could definitely see that coming off of Prometheus because they, they leave in an engineer ship. The ending of Covenant is so much stranger because we leave the crashed Covenant ship on planet four. And, you know, the idea of a, an earthbound vessel crashing on LV-426 and in such a short period becoming completely indistinguishable. And that also means there had to, had to have been a crashed engineer ship waiting there already. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just, we also have to remember that uh, Ridley Scott couldn't make up his mind how many more films he was going to be entitled to. Sometimes it was a trilogy. Sometimes it was going to be five movies before we actually connect to the back end of Alien. I think but at one he, point it was seven movies. Oh, there was right. A, it was seven. Yeah, there was one where I was like, that's that's stupid. Yeah. You have to feel bad. I, um, uh, what is her name who plays Daniels? Watterson? Catherine, Catherine Watterson. Yeah. Okay. Because here she is. She's She's contractually obligated to make these Prometheus sequels with Ridley Scott. And meanwhile, she's also contractually obligated to make those uh, Harry Potter prequels. And she was on stage sitting next to J.K. Rowling when J.K. Rowling said, oh, there's going to be five more of these films. And she had to hold it in like, oh, <laughs> you know, sorry. So this poor lady was tied in. And I, I think that she must be very happy that none of that's happening anymore. Um, given that Ridley Scott is not making multiple sequels and given what he ended Covenant on, which possibly, Jamie, if you're right, um, this shows a little bit of hubris. Like he really, he wasn't hedging his bets. If he was hedging his bets, David would have somehow left on uh, on a derelict ship, on a, a juggernaut, even though they're not the same exact ship. I don't know if you guys have seen this. The one in Alien 
is is much more of a horseshoe and the one in, in Prometheus so that it can roll is much more of a donut with a bite taken out. Regardless, they don't leave on that ship. And so you have to, if you're going to connect it to Alien, which I don't want it to ever do, you have to go to yet another engineer planet and find yet another derelict ship and commandeer it and fly it and crash it. And I just... Well, see, that's what I think was going to happen. They were going to, it was going to be some other alien. There's going to be some other derelict that was going to be on the planet already or something. Would they they find a a beacon? Would they find a beacon first? I'm sure they would. If if it's Ridley Scott directing, I'm sure it'd be another beacon. Would somebody (laughs) look into an egg after being told not to? (sighs) Well, that's, that's why I'm glad we don't have this other sequel coming. And I I said that after Covenant too. I was like, you know what? A lot of the reasons why I still love Covenant are because they're unanswered questions that I can put my own subjective self into and Mm -hmm. find answers to that I like. And I, I, I still to this day worry that like the movies that you, the three of us have been bringing up, there's no chance in hell that those movies would ever get made, especially with Ridley Scott's involved. But I, I think that that's just like one of them might make an interesting audio drama. Ah. <laughs> oh, my body's changing. I know. I know. <laughs> no, no. I'm just kidding. It's a cool it idea. Has a, I'm just, I'm just it has a William Gibson Alien 3 vibe, though, with a, the peeling out yeah, of the skin. It's the same that's, mechanic. Yeah. I think that's why it's a good thing that we don't have this third movie. And that's why I hope we actually never get it. And honestly, like, I I, th- I feel like of all of us, I am the least needing new content. Like I don't get that excited when things are announced. I'm always like, okay. Like I, I, I feel like I know the movies that I love in alien. Like I have things that mean a lot to me and I don't want them messed up too much by having new things come out all the time and being so hyper franchised and like you know what i mean so i i get worried that the studio is going to do these things what what disney wants i think we have a clear window into because of andor which is a masterpiece which i'm not complaining about but like they're setting up this whole arc now as christian has pointed out where you're going to have all these these seasons of andor are going to connect to rogue one which will then connect into episode four which will then be this continuous like 35 hour long viewing thing Disney loves that. Like Disney can print fucking money left and right with things like that. Right. Because everybody's going to want to do it. And you know, another example of that is in the lead up to uh, Avengers Endgame, which I also love that there was an, all these 27 hour screenings all over the world. And they made so much money because they were sold out everywhere because people love that people love having continuity and having tons of fucking content to watch, regardless of whether it's good or bad, just to be able to be part of a, of a grand narrative. I mean, Marvel is experiencing this right now. I personally, as a big comic guy, I've, I've kind of tapped out of the MCU at this point. Like this late, this last round of things, I haven't watched much of it. I'm like tired of this shit. And, and I feel like for me to be saying that is, is a big deal because I really went to all of this shit opening weekend for years. You know, I think they drive these franchises into the ground because they continue making money. That being said, Quantumania, the new Ant-Man movie that's coming out, I have less than zero interest in seeing that, to quote Bertie Stanalis. And I have to say, like, it will make fucking $800 million. I Maybe. It, it looks like office. fucking Spy Kids. Have you but seen it, the trailer? It's, it's, it doesn't it matter. Like it's going to make so much money. Green screen. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the, one of my favorite subreddits is the box office subreddit, because it's like just a bunch of math geeks talking about how things are performing and what they're going to do, what the projections look like. And, and that's a great case study in this, because everybody's like, where is the breaking point where MCU movies become so unlikable that or so, or so non-universally beloved that they start to lose money and and everybody's like it's it's going to be years before we get to that point because they franchised it so successfully that everybody will go see it 
you know, or at least enough people will go see it that they'll make money. So if they can get Alien to that, which I'm sure they would love to, in which I fucking hope the Fede Alvarez and the Noah Hawley series don't get us to, but like, I, I guarantee the studio is asking for some of that. That's just, it scares me, which is a stupid thing to say because it's entertainment. Who fucking cares? But like, it's, it scares me a little bit, you know? The, I just have to say, while the, the Marvel movies in this last phase have been a mixed bag, the Marvel television shows have been some of the best things they've put out because there's breathing room. So characters that like Hawkeye, Hawkeye's a joke in the movies. He gets, you know, a moment here and there. And then this, this ridiculous buildup in Age of Ultron, where they, they throw every single trope of this guy's going to die at you and then have him not die. And then don't do anything with the character after that. Then they give him a TV show where over the course of, I don't know, eight episodes or something, he does amazing character work. So I just, I feel like when the the Marvel movies, I stopped going in the theater to see them because I didn't really care, but the Marvel TV shows, every single one was worth watching. And I don't particularly care for the last couple Star Wars movies and Star Wars TV has honestly been a mixed bag too, but there have been enough good things on Star Wars television. But again. Back to your point, Patrick, I'm, I'm someone who I love alien and I love aliens and I, and I really love alien three as well. And I'm kind of all done. I don't actually need this to be a franchise. Um, I'm happy when Titan puts out a good book a year and they put out three other books every single year. And it's, it just keeps piling up. I was really done with predator though. I just have to say predator two, I, I found to be amusing in a few places and I love the alien skull. I have to say that. And then I just checked out that that was something I didn't need in my life. And then Prey shows up and is actually my favorite Predator movie. So there is room in my heart for more great alien content, but I'm not demanding it. I'm not writing letters to Fox slash Disney. If there isn't another alien movie, if there isn't anything else added to the alien franchise, I'm happy with the saga that we have. So no, I don't need the, the prequels to, to connect to anything or be continued. Uh, and I, and I don't want, I don't want Disney to look at this as a cash cow that can be milked. I was just going to say, I know we're probably going to wrap soon. I'm curious to our listeners, or I'm curious from our listeners, what do you guys think in terms of, uh, how would you end the prequel trilogy, the lack of prequel trilogy? What would your next film be? Write us, send us an email, message us on Facebook or post on Facebook or, on Instagram or whatever, and let us know. We would love to, I'd love to like go into some of these ideas and see what people are thinking. Is it better to leave it, leave it the way it is and move on, which I think is true. Or are people wanting to see more? And I feel like it's going to be, it might be fairly balanced in terms of the people who want to see more and the people who are done. Uh, There are a lot of fans of David. There are fans of the prequel films for sure. Um, there are people who write in saying stop, who write into us saying stop bashing the prequels. I mean, uh, there are people who love them and they love them despite their flaws, which I find very interesting. I mean, we've discussed as well. There are things that I love about Prometheus, even though I can't watch the movie with the sound on. I love about it. There are things I love about Covenant more so than Prometheus, but I can't watch the second half of it. So I'm curious to our listeners if you have an interesting story for uh, a final film in the prequel trilogy, what would that be? Let us know. 
Yeah, please do. And I, w- I want to say, last thing I'll say about this is we were playing Alien Isolation on Sunday night because we're very frequently playing Alien Isolation, which is coming up on 10 years old before we know it. And, uh, and you know, my sister was asking me, I was playing with my sister and my wife, and she was like, like, why did they never make a sequel to it? And so I went into the whole spiel about what happened and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, but at the end of the day, I'm glad that they never did. Because we have this perfect artifact that is just sitting there as a beautiful self-contained unit that we can revisit as much as we want to. And Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3 for me will always be those beautiful artifacts that are untouchable. And that's why Blomkamp pissed me off so much. And that's why I think I'm excited to get to that topic. Because that really does crack open this question of what do you keep sacred and what do you not? And I think that that is an interesting thing to look forward to. So yeah, so thank you. And and thank you, Christian, for bringing all this, you know, incredible Lovecraft knowledge to the table for these episodes. Obviously we're going to keep revisiting this in some ways, but this is kind of the conclusion of this little arc that we've had. And it's been fun learning from you, man. Thank you very much. Oh, I always like talking about the weird things that bounce around inside my head. So To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.